In May of 2001, my great-grandmother, Lena Schaefer, died at the age of 97. And my family, the Schaefer family, gathered all of her belongings together and we spread them out on tables, like garage sale style, in my grandparents' garage. And we were able to comb through these boxes of knickknacks and trinkets to try to find something, anything that we would want to keep as a way to remember her. And I remember having a hard time with this process. Not because my great-grandmother had died and I missed her, that, and that was true, but I was struggling with a deeper question as I moved to yet another shoebox filled with stuff. Like, how does a trinket represent a legacy? And at 12 years old, maybe you know, but I didn't, and at 12 years old, I did not have an answer that satisfied me. But suddenly, I uncovered a ring. This ring. And since you can't see it from up here, I have a picture for you. There's a, if you can't tell, that's a script M on the front. And that stands for Mo, which is the name of my grandfather, Lena's son, okay? This ring was a class ring of sorts for my grandfather when he was in high school. And for whatever reason, we don't even really know how it happened, but he stopped wearing it at some point, and my great-grandmother had kept it all those years. And I was so excited because I had finally found something that stuck out to me. Something small, you can hardly see it, but something that would last, which is perfect for a memory, to remember the legacy of those that had come before me. I remember trying it on every single finger of each hand. I'm skinny now, and I was much skinnier then. (laughs) And it didn't fit, like you're not even close. It didn't fit properly, and to be honest with you, I I didn't really understand the significance of it yet. So in other words, you could say I wasn't ready to wear it yet. But when we first meet David, the description we get doesn't really sound like someone who's prepared to be a warrior king. And that makes sense, right? Because he was just a boy. 1 Samuel 16, starting in verse 12, the prophet Samuel is there with Jesse and his sons. He's supposed to find the next king of Israel and anoint him. And it says of, of David, now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. He was good looking. That doesn't make him qualified to be king any more than wearing this super fashionalized version of a bomber jacket makes me qualified to fly a plane. (laughs) Much less drop bombs out of it, even in a practice run. Okay? Like, but it says, but David was very young when he was anointed king, but when the ceremony took place on the outside, there was also a change that happened on the inside as the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him and he knew that he really would be king one day. It might be hard for us to understand that a child could somehow know something like that, but our God is way bigger than what we can fathom in our own minds and I believe his ways are higher than our ways and I believe that David, even as a child, was able to know in the depths of his soul that he would somehow be king of this nation one day. 
And he was inherently gifted. We know this because we have stories of how he killed lions and bears as a boy while he was tending to his father's sheep. I have never killed a lion or a bear before, especially as a small child, okay? He was inherently gifted, but that was just the beginning because since he had received the anointing of the Holy Spirit and started walking in it, because that's the real key, and started walking in it, his gifts quickly became more evident to those around him. And most importantly, he knew his destiny. So he started learning and preparing himself to be king. Just four verses later, he even goes so far as to start serving King Saul, the man who would hunt him down for years and try to kill him, and the man he would eventually replace as king. Now, we don't know for sure how much time passes in those four verses, but most scholars agree that it was a relatively short amount of time, a few months to maybe a few years at the most. So he's still really young. And when this happens, when he starts serving King Saul, we get an updated description of David, and much has changed in a very short amount of time. Let's look at 1 Samuel 16, starting in verse 17. So Saul said to his servants, that's a lot of S's. I had to practice that a bunch. (laughs) Yeah, maybe I should slow down. So Saul said to his servants, provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. Now really quickly, in those four verses, something very important happened. The spirit of the Lord rushed upon David and the spirit of the Lord left Saul. And a tormenting spirit, a spirit of negativity and jealousy and fear and paranoia was tormenting Saul. It was consuming him, and the only way that he could calm down is if someone played the harp. And so he asks his servants, find somebody to play me the harp. Let's keep going. One of the young men answered, behold, I have seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite who is skillful in playing, check mark, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. Wow. That sounds like a king I could get behind. That sounds like a president I could get behind. I'm not trying to be political here at all. That's someone that I could serve. A man of valor, a man of war. I love that. I'm a guy, right? I love that. But prudent in speech, that means he knew what to say, and he knew when to say it, and he knew how to say it. And a man of good presence, that means he was calm, he was professional, he was confident, he was consistent, And he carried himself well. I don't know too many teenagers that sound like that. They can. They can sound like that. Why did he sound like that? The Lord was with him. That's the most important part. And the Lord is with him. And just a quick tangent, because there's an entire sermon in those two verses alone, and I almost wanted to just change my sermon halfway through and just go on those two verses alone. But I just feel compelled to share this. Did you notice how Saul simply asked for someone who could play well? And God sent him so much more than that. Somebody needs to hear this today. God is blessing you so far beyond what you're asking of him right now and the evidence is all around you. Yet, 
You are choosing a spirit of negativity instead of thankfulness in the midst of this blessing because your perspective is warped and you are believing a lie, a lie that needs to be replaced with the truth from God's word so that the spirit of the joy of your salvation can be restored to you, Psalm 51. Somebody needed that this morning. The joy of your salvation needs to be restored to you. David rarely missed learning opportunities. And now he was very close to King Saul, which is a perfect training ground, albeit very tense and very dangerous. It would enable him to learn what it takes to be king of a nation, of people. Millions of people. And he took full advantage of this opportunity. And we don't have enough time to cover all of those examples, but the point of this this whole thing is that he knew his destiny, so he started to build his legacy. Even before he became king, it took him 22 years. It's a long time to wait for your destiny. So if there's one thing I want you to understand today, it's this. We covered this in the very beginning when I went way off script. If you want to leave a legacy, you have to build a legacy and you build a legacy one learning opportunity at a time. David didn't last long in Saul's service because Saul quickly became intimidated by David's military success. As a result, David would be on the run for years from Saul, often hiding in caves and hiding in the wilderness. And even though he was hiding in the wilderness, men began to flock to him because the Lord was with him. You sensing the theme yet? So David starts building this army and training his army. It says he became commander over them. And it was a relatively small force, about 400 guys in the beginning. But this was a perfect learning opportunity once again. You never stop learning. Not till the day you die, hopefully. But this was also now a leadership opportunity. This was a great example in a small setting, only 400 guys to begin with, where he could start a new culture, set a new tone for how his big army would run someday and how he would rule his entire nation of his people someday. It's a great leadership opportunity and a great learning opportunity. And David rarely missed leadership opportunities. He rarely missed teaching opportunities. On two different occasions, he had Saul dead to rights. He could have killed him. And his men are sitting there encouraging him, come on, David, this is your chance. You know what God said, you're supposed to be king. We're tired of running. We're tired of living in the wilderness. We're tired of living in caves. We're supposed to be in the palace. This is your destiny, David. God told you. But he didn't kill him. Now, David did this in direct obedience to God because he believed that he should not put out his hand against the Lord's anointed. David, Saul was still the anointed king of Israel. And he believed that God would take care of him. But this also made a huge impression on his men. By by sparing Saul's life, he proved himself to be an honorable man, far more honorable than Saul certainly was. 
He proved himself to be a man of faith and in doing so led his men in having faith that God would protect them and God would ultimately deal with Saul. Even, and again, you have to understand, this probably upset his men. They were tired. Come on, David, this, Saul's inferior to you. He's an inferior warrior. He's an inferior leader. We only got 400 guys. He's got three, four, five thousand, ten thousand. He has as many troops as he wants and he can't catch us. But David knew, even if they, his men disagreed with him in the moment, they didn't quite understand his purpose for doing something in the moment. He knew that if he remained faithful to God and faithful to his men, even as they disagreed with him, that his men would learn and eventually become faithful to him. And his leadership example inspired his men to great victories in their own right. And they loved David. They would come to love David so much that they would give everything. They would risk their lives to do anything for him day after day after day for many years. And the greatest example of this is David's mighty men. Come on, you know I had to go there. Come on. Yeah. Really quickly, our men's ministry is called 37. We get our inspiration from these passages about David's mighty men. If you haven't checked it out, please do. You will not regret it. My favorite story about these men comes from 2 Samuel 23. These men, you have to understand, these were unquestionably some of the greatest warriors that have ever lived. They were supernaturally gifted in fighting, it seems, to me at least. I don't know how you guys read those passages, but 800 guys with a spear by yourself sounds like you had some help and it wasn't steroids. Maybe supernatural steroids, maybe some Holy Spirit steroids or something. Okay. These men were unquestionably some of the greatest warriors that have ever lived, and they also, they were extraordinary men, and they also responded to David's leadership example, example on a level that ordinary men did not. And so we look at 2 Samuel 23, and we see my favorite story of these mighty men. We don't even know their names. Starting in verse 13, let's read about this. And three of the 30 chief men went down and came about harvest time to David at the cave of Adullam, when a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. David was then in the stronghold, and the garrison of the Philistines was then at Bethlehem. Now let's stop there for a second. In this time in David's life, he was on the run from Saul, and because Saul was wasting his time with David, the Philistines became very brave and were invading into Israelite territory, even as far as this region, which was a few miles south of Jerusalem. So Saul was putting his own kingdom at great risk by hunting down this David. Okay, now if you could put the picture of the Valley of Rephaim up, I want to show you what this area looks like today. This is just part of it. This is south of Jerusalem. Mountainous, rocky, rough terrain. Now we don't know for sure exactly what cave or series of caves, caves that David and his men were in, but based on the, the, the features of this area, we know that David could have been as close to Bethlehem as two or three miles or as far away as 14 miles. And the Philistines are in this valley, camped in this valley, 
and they're also camped within the town of Bethlehem, David's hometown. Let's keep going. And David, verse 15, And David said longingly, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. Let's stop there. I don't know this for a fact, but I'm willing to bet that this was not the only source of water in the area because David and his men had survived here, this area for years. And they couldn't just every day go up to Bethlehem and get water because Saul would catch them. So there had to have been many sources of water in this region. But David wanted this water because this was his favorite water. First world problems, right? Man, we have no idea. We just have no concept of that. I believe, that, again, I don't know this, but I, I just believe that David had fond memories of coming up to the town of Bethlehem after a long day in the pasture with his father's sheep and drinking from that water, and he remembered how refreshing it tastes. Doesn't everything always taste better when you remember it, like from when you're a child, you're, you're a child right? Like the Kool-Aid, it, it tasted amazing. It's awful. <laughs> it's so terrible, I would never drink it. But like when I was a kid, man, we get a cup of Kool-Aid every night at dinner and then water. <laughs> right, Mom? Yeah. Um, so David just, rem- he had fond memories of how refreshing this water tasted. And so this comment was more of like a day, he was just daydreaming out loud. This was not a command to his men. Okay? Verse 16. Then the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew out water from the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and carried it and brought it to David. Let's stop there. That sentence is probably the least exciting, least detailed, um, like, that's not what happened, okay? That's not a very good description. I mean, it's, it's true, it's factually true, but let me tell you what actually happened, okay? Let's put the picture of the valley back up. Okay, this is, the, this is where we are. David's in the caves somewhere in this valley. Three men, let's say, best case scenario, they're two miles away from Bethlehem, okay? That's a long way. When that's your terrain, you're wearing heavy armor, you're carrying heavy weapons, and they're encumbered by one vessel, if not multiple vessels, to hold water. So they have to march two miles through the valley. There's a Philistines camped in the valley, and I don't, we don't know how many men were there, but... I think a conservative number is several hundred in the valley and maybe a couple more hundred in the town of Bethlehem itself. They fight through the Philistines in the valley. They get up to the gate of Bethlehem. Thankfully, the well is just inside the gate and not on the other end of town. They fight through the Philistines in the valley. They come up to the gate. They fight through the gate. Then I'm guessing one of the three starts, drops his weapons or puts them away and starts drawing water out of the well. The other two guys are probably fighting off the Philistines coming up from the valley that weren't dead yet. And the, the Philistines from the other side of town were, were coming in from the other side. They're, so they're surrounded by Philistines and one guy's drawing water out and there's two guys fighting them off from both sides. Then they get the water. They fight back through the Philistines at the gate, back through the Philistines, down through the valley, two miles back up to the caves. What I just described to you is what actually happened in that one sentence. And what I just described to you is a summer blockbuster that would go toe-to-toe with the Avengers or Star Wars any day of the week. I hear so often, you guys, I hear so often that the Old Testament is boring and hard to understand. And yeah, there are some parts that are a little bit hard to understand. There are some parts that are dry. But that is freaking awesome. 
You just got to know where to look. And you just have to know, again, I read that sentence before, but I stopped and thought about it and looked at that picture for five minutes. And God revealed to me what, this is what probably really happened. Okay? It's definitely not boring. And they bring the water back to David and it says, let's keep going, it says, but he would not drink of it. He poured poured it out to the Lord, verse 17, and said, far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went at risk of their lives? Therefore, he would not drink it. David immediately recognized how careless he had been. He had drastically underestimated the love and devotion that his men had for him. And he quickly seized another leadership opportunity to make another huge impression on his men. By pouring out that water to the Lord, he led his men in humility and thankfulness. Now again, those three men were there. They just risked their lives for the water. Apparently it wasn't difficult at all for them. (laughs) And there's other men there, at least 400, probably witnessing this. And some of you are thinking, okay, thanks for apologizing, David, but we have the water, you know, like, don't waste it. (laughs) Like, we get it, we're good, we're cool, but don't waste it. No, oh, no, 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 come on, man. Again, I'm willing to bet some of his men disagreed with that approach in the moment, and they were upset. But David wanted them to know, notice he's talking to the Lord, not them, too. Far be it from me, O Lord, right? He wanted them to know that, again, he was remaining faithful to God and faithful to them. He wanted them to know that he was thankful that God would love him so much to place men like that in his life, that would love him so much that they would do anything for him, even risk their lives for a daydream. And he wanted them to know that he was not going to take them for granted anymore. And his men would feel more loved and more valued by their commander who would become king because of that. Maybe not in the moment, but it would pay off later. To leave a legacy, you have to build a legacy, and you build a legacy one learning opportunity at a time and one leadership opportunity at a time. David also showed a pattern of repentance in returning to the Lord. And when we talk about David's mistakes, the first one we all, and probably the only one we think about is David and Bathsheba. And that makes sense. Adultery, and arranging the murder of one of your chief mighty men, Uriah the Hittite, that's, that's not so good. But I want to talk about a different mistake that David made. Closer to the end of his reign. We find the story in 2 Samuel 24, where David takes a census of the people. And in what was probably a combination of pride in his own strength and lack of trust in God's provision... David needs to know how many men he has. And you have to remember, David didn't really lose in battle. And as he consolidated his power and fought enemies on every side, his power grew and grew and grew. His empire grew. His army grew. And by this point, he has a huge army. Some estimates over a million men. 
But he needs to know how many men he has, exactly how many men. And some of you are thinking, well, what's the big deal? He's the king, right? He should know things like this, you know, for budgetary reasons and supply chain reasons. And like, you know, maybe he has his officer to enlisted man ratio isn't right, so he needs to train up some more officers. Like these are all legitimate concerns. I mean, the stock market is impacted by, like. (laughs) So what's the big deal? Here's the problem. David had never known how many men he had before. He had never counted because he didn't need to. Why? The Lord was with him. He had always put his trust in God, that God would provide and that God would hand his enemies over to him, that God would give him victory, that God would protect him. And whatever David's motivation was, we don't really know, but he needed to know how many men he had and his commanders tried to stop him. Even some guys with shoddy track records at best saw through this and were like, David, don't worry about it, man. We can't lose. We have plenty of men. We've never needed to know. And you have to remember the army wasn't all consolidated around Jerusalem. They were spread out through the whole region. So it was relatively impossible for David to know how many men he had. We don't, God has always been there. God has always provided, David, don't do this. If we need more men, God will give us more men. We're good. David forces them to go anyway. And the census takes nine months. Nine months. He had nine months to think about what he had done, send messengers out to catch his commanders and say, guys, I'm sorry, you were right. Call it off. He had nine months to think about that decision. He had nine months to pull the plug, but he didn't. And we pick it up in 2 Samuel 24. The commanders return. They give them the final numbers. In fact, they actually lied to him. They left out some, they didn't count some of the men as an act of solidarity and defiance to their king who they knew was sinning. But they give him those final fake numbers. It says in verse 10, but David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, again, to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done, but now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. Do you notice the growth here? I think my brother did a great job preaching a few weeks ago about the importance of David's relationship with the prophet Nathan and how David was unrepentant in the situation with Bathsheba and Uriah until Nathan confronted him with a parable. But here, as soon as he hears the final numbers, the spirit convicts him and he responds. Now I know what you're saying. Yeah, but his commanders tried to stop him in the beginning. That's true. David's servants tried to stop him before he committed adultery with Bathsheba. So yes, he didn't listen the first time. Yes, he didn't listen the second time. But the second time, he turned immediately. Didn't have to be confronted. And as a result of his sin, God sends a plague for three days and 70,000 men alone died. That's a big deal. To stop the plague, David commands that David, God commands that David build an altar on the threshing floor of a Jebusite man near Jerusalem. Now I have a picture of a threshing floor I want you guys to take a look at. The Jebusites were a tribe of people that occupied Jerusalem before the Israelites did. When the Israelites conquered the city, they didn't kill everyone. They just made the Jebusites their subjects. And this is a picture of what a threshing floor 
looks like. This is not from Israel necessarily. This is just what a threshing floor looks like. And this location is very important because a threshing floor was used in the process to harvest wheat. They would take harvested wheat from the field and they would spread it out in this flat place made of stones and they would separate the edible part, the grain, from the chaff, which was inedible. They usually built these, these flat places on hills as high as they could because it's windier. And the easiest way to accomplish this separating of the grain from the chaff is to have oxen or cows walk in a circle and trample on the wheat. And then the men would use pitchforks and get a bunch of wheat in the pitchfork and toss it up into the air, and then the wind would blow through that cloud of wheat. And since the chaff was less dense than the grain, it would blow away. And the grain, which was more dense, would fall back down to the ground, and they could use it. David understood this, and I believe that David knew why God had brought up here and that God had a special purpose for this. David had sinned and repented, and he knew. But I believe that God wanted to make sure David understood that he wasn't done with him yet. He took David to a threshing floor and reminded David of that process to remind him that the process of becoming more like Jesus is painful because the pride and the selfishness and the distrust, sometimes it needs to be trampled and pressed down and tossed into the wind so that it can be blown away and the humility and the thankfulness and the trust can fall back down to the ground and remain and be used and grown and grown and grown. So David buys the threshing floor from this man even though the man insists he take it freely. I'll give you the threshing floor. I'll give you all the animals required for the sacrifice. I'll give it to you. And David says, no, I will buy it for the full price. I will not give what costs me nothing. Further showing his repentant heart and how he returned to the Lord. And that land, that piece of land becomes property of the royal family. And David's son Solomon, whose mother was Bathsheba, reminds you, may I remind you, okay, the other big mistake. But David's son Solomon goes on to build the temple of the Lord on the side of that threshing floor. After David's death, he wasn't there for it. He prepared for it, but he wasn't there for it. And what would be the primary worship music in that temple? David's Psalms. And 3,000 years later, I would argue that there is no greater source material that inspires modern worship music, even in the year 2017, than David's Psalms. 3,000 years later. Do you think he knew that was going to happen? Nope. Do you think he knew that his songs were going to be sung in the temple? Maybe. You can read notes to the musicians at the beginning of some of his Psalms, but... 3,000 years later, with guitars and loudspeakers, and no, he had no idea. That's a legacy. David walked in the anointing that he had received and built his legacy, one learning opportunity at a time, one leadership opportunity at a time, and one repentance opportunity at a time. By the time I got to college, I had 
physically grown enough that I could start wearing this ring. And I also started to understand its significance. You might say I, say I had grown up a little bit. And I was starting to come to the grips, to grips with the gravity of my own legacy. My grandfather and I talk about this ring often. He, we talk about it almost every time he sees me wearing it. He tells me over and over and over again the same story about how his uncle, my great-great-uncle, made this ring for him. out of stainless steel in the shop at Caterpillar over 70 years ago. Funny how I would start my engineering career at Caterpillar while I was still in college. But stainless steel is an incredible material forged in a long, difficult process. I love this. You see, you have to melt down and mix together things like iron ore and chromium and nickel and several other elements. And then this mixture goes through a series of intense heat treatments and cooling treatments, and it's rolled and pressed several times. Each step slowly changing the properties of the material. Am I preaching yet? Okay. By removing impurities. Am I preaching yet? Okay making it stronger and lighter and more flexible and more moldable. I, guys, I know this sounds like nerd stuff right now, but I'm t- I know I'm preaching to somebody right now. I know this is nerd stuff, but I am preaching to somebody right now. These strengthening steps leave a buildup on the surface of the metal. It doesn't look very good, so it has to be cleaned. What do they clean it with? An acid bath. And sometimes they add electricity to that acid bath. Another intense process. And now it starts to look pretty, finally. But then it's time to cut the steel into the desired shape. Different applications, different purposes. Everybody's journey is a little bit different. Everybody's process is a little bit different. And finally, we get to the finishing steps to make the surface turn out shiny and smooth like you're used to seeing with your refrigerator and your dishwasher. but this means going through another round of hot rolling and cold rolling or polishing and buffing with abrasive chemicals. The process is long and intense, but the final product is incredible. It isn't perfect, though. It will show scratches. It will show scars. If you look closely at the picture of my ring, you can see some scratches. 70 years is a long time but it will never rust. It will never tarnish. It will never fade away. If you want to leave a stainless steel legacy, you have to build a stainless steel legacy, and it's going to take a long, intense process. There will be some heat, and there will be some cold, and there will be, you'll be pressed down, but with your foundation in Jesus, you will, you will build and leave a stainless steel legacy, a one, one that is strong and lightweight, because the Lord says in Isaiah 40, I give strength to the, to the weary and increase the power of the weak. And Jesus says in Matthew 11 that my yoke is easy and my burden is light. 
there will be difficulty. Scratches and scars are going to show, but no rust, no tarnishing, no fading away. This ring is so much more to me now. It's more than just a ring. It reminds me of the legacy of people that have gone before me. When I see it, I think about my my great-grandmother, my grandfather. I think about my dad. The wisest man I know. Thomas, David, Shaver. And I think about my freaking fire-breathing, truth-bombing preacher of a brother. Isaac, David, Schaefer. I think about myself. Philip, David, Schaefer. And how I'm responsible now for passing on the legacy that I carry to my son. Cale, David, Schaefer. Three generations tied together with the same name, David. Yes, the names were chosen deliberately. They, they match on purpose. And yes, it's just a name. But the legacy I received was way more than just a ring. And it was way more than just a name that connects me to King David. The legacy that, no, the legacy that I'm talking about, the legacy I received was one of putting my trust in the name of King Jesus. And thankfully, the name of King Jesus is way more than just a name because there's salvation in that name. There's healing in that name. There's redemption in that name. And there's legacy in that name. Building a legacy matters because leaving a legacy matters. But don't take my word for it. Exodus 20, verse 5. It says, I'm the Lord, I the Lord your God am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for any other gods. I lay my sins, I lay the sins of the parents upon their children. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generations of those who reject me. If you don't believe in generational sin, you better start believing in generational sin because it's real and God guarantees that it's real. And if you don't believe God and don't believe the Bible, just look around you for a second. For one second, I see generational anger, generational bitterness, generational racism, generational substance abuse, generational divorce, generational apathy. Generational, I don't care anymore. Don't take my word for it. And if you can't take God's word for it yet, just look around you. But thankfully, that's not the only possible outcome because verse 6 also is also right there next to it. I might have to read this a couple times for you guys to get it, so this is going to be up to you. But I, the Lord, that is the Lord, but I lavish unfailing love for a thousand generations on those who love me and obey my commands. 
I don't think some of the back half didn't get it yet. But I lavish unfailing love for a thousand generations on those who love me and obey my commands. It matters. Legacy matters. And my favorite verse right now in my life is Isaiah 55.3. Very similar. Come to me with your ears wide open. Listen. And you will find life. I will make an everlasting covenant with you. I will give you all the unfailing love. That same Exodus 20, verse 6 love. I will give you all the unfailing love I promised. To who? David. Building a legacy matters because leaving a legacy matters. And you can start right now. You don't have to, it's not too late. You didn't miss the boat. You start right now. Right on time. God's timing is always right on time. You start right now. Oh, I'm not King David. Doesn't matter. Because he's going to give you all the unfailing love that he also promised to King David. As followers of Jesus, that's all of us, as followers of Jesus, King David or not, we know our destiny and we have access to the unfailing love of the greatest legacy maker. So may we step forward together from that position with the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. And as we close, we're going to sing one of my favorite songs, King of My Heart. And I want you to pay special attention to the second verse. Because there's some legacy language there. It says, let the king of my heart be the fire inside my veins. That's the foundation. Let the king of my heart be the fire inside my veins. The echo of my days. Oh, he is my song. The echo of your days. That is your legacy. So what will the the echo of your days be? What will the echo of your day be? Let's make this our anthem this morning.